So uh, today I'm going to talk about my handbook. I want to explain a little bit about what that actually means. So uh, the first talk today from Lisa, she showed those posters, uh, you know, show the thing. Um, and I've got a bunch of these mostly written on post-it notes, which are my own sort of, uh, I guess, kind of design principles, but they're my own. They're just to keep me on the straight and narrow, to stop me getting bogged down in things that aren't, uh, are, you know, unimportant, uh, to, to keep, me, keep me on the right path. So I'm going to share those with you today. They're, they're kind of random. There's, they're, some are related, some aren't, but they're mostly about my, about my work. But first, I'm going to talk about taps. Uh, this is my own secret kind of collection of taps. I take photographs of taps. I'm the weird guy in the, uh, in the, super, uh, you know, the, the motorway service stations taking photographs of the taps. I've become very aware that uh, washrooms are kind of a stressful environment, especially when there's a guy taking photographs of taps. Uh, so I take photographs of taps that don't work uh, or, or, or confuse me. So this is one where the temperature was on the right-hand side and the other knob did... Uh, did the water. Not too problematic, except when it scolded me. Um, this one, so I'm, I'm, you're probably, I'm probably not alone in that I have ghost hands when it comes to automatic taps. Right Now, they may be more hygienic, but I cannot make them work for me. My hands become invisible. I'm the guy uh, doing this along um, multiple sinks at, uh, you know, whenever there's a washroom. This one confused me. I didn't actually know what to do with this, which is why I had to take photographs of it, several photographs, because this, there was a sensor, but I didn't know where it was. I don't even know what this thing was over on the right. I kind of wave in my hand in front of it. It didn't work. I put my hand, and eventually it worked, and it soaked my wrists. Uh, it's the, the worst tap. I've actually got a video of a tap from last week that I took. I'm going to share with you. So this, uh, is this even going to work? Do I have to press something to make this work? Uh, oh, here we go. So, this is a real tap. There's no water coming out. There's still no water coming. There was water. No. 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 Yes. Right? No. Yes. See, that really annoyed me. Um, so I've got a growing collection. So why am I? So you've heard of Norman doors? These are Bolton taps. Uh, that is a thing. Uh, why am I showing you pictures of taps? Because taps should not require instructions, like this tap in St Luke's in London. Uh, taps, taps are really straightforward things, right? You would think. Um, and it comes on to my first, my first point, and this is the thinginess of the thing. So. When I, uh, when I first started design, I started designing in college. First of all, I thought I was going to be a scientist, and then I failed all my exams. It was a terrible day. Uh, so I kind of always kind of draw well, so I thought, oh, I'll just do that. Um, and I went through university, and I got to uh, study typographic design at university. And uh, so this was in the mid-'90s, and everybody in university was printing, you know, producing print design. Like, web design wasn't really a thing then. The web was something that computer scientists did in another building in the campus somewhere. We didn't, we didn't touch that. We made pretty posters and held them up and had photographs taken of them and things like that. So that's what I was doing uh, until... So we had a dye sublimation printer. Remember dye sub printers? 
big thing like this, and it printed like wax on, onto the paper. And I was uh, producing my kind of final major project, and I'd print out a thing, and it cost £10 for one print. In 1995, that was like £1,800. Well, no, not really. But, uh, it, it, uh, you know, if, I, if there was a mistake, I wouldn't eat for a couple of days, right? I was skint. I was a student. I didn't have any money. So the, the repercussions of a typo were really quite real. Uh, I, I literally wouldn't eat for a day. So where am I going with this? I have to refer to my notes. I tend to kind of ramble off. So uh, yes, right. So it was around that time I was making lots of mistakes and printing bits, and I was skint, and I had no money, and everything cost loads of money to print out posters that I held up. And you know, so I was like, there's, there's got to be a better way. Uh, and then one of my um, one of my friends was was um, producing a website, so I was like, I, I wonder if I could just do that and learn it. I'd learned some HyperCard. Do you remember HyperCard? And I was like, I couldn't be harder than that. I'll just learn. I'll just it'll be fine. So I, des <laughs> I designed my first website. It was about Elvis. I have no idea why. I don't like Elvis. I remember it being pink for some reason. I don't know why it was pink. Probably because I could write pink uh, and not have it some the hex reference. So it was, it was awful, right? So why am I telling you this? Well, I'm telling you this because I think the, the, I, I'm coming around to, I've, I've got a great interest in, in kind of architecture and um, materials in architecture. And one of the things about the web that makes the web the web, right? So in, in architecture and certainly in, in modernism, there was a big drive to, for a material truth. It was like, let concrete be concrete. Let, let grass be grass. Let slate be slate. Don't try and make it into something else. Show it in its barest truthful way. And it got me thinking about, well, what's the web in its barest truthful way, right? And the thinginess of the thing that really excites me about the web is that I can make a typo and I can change it. And I can just, there's, there's no barrier to publishing. You just press a button and there it is. And not only is it there, but it's everywhere. Well, you can't get that in print. You can't get that in any other medium. I worked for the BBC for a while, and TV costs an absolute fortune for what they do. It's incredibly costly. Um, making a real product is incredibly costly and complicated. You, you know, we don't have supply lines of steel. We don't have to, pixels don't cost anything. We just press a button, and there it is. So what the, the reason why this is next to my desk is because I like to remind myself about the environment in which we work on the web and why it's special. And I think that that, that is why it's special. The thinginess of the thing for the web is that we don't have to wait to publish, and publishing costs nothing, well, virtually nothing. So that's the first thing. Oh, and there's also things like embracing things that make the web special, other than publish. So progressive enhancement, hyperlinks, all this stuff that just does not exist really in any other medium. You know, those are, those are our tools. And, and really to produce great work on the web, we've got to really, really understand the thinginess of the thing. We've got to understand how the web was born, why it was made. The fact that, I, so uh, uh, PPK mentioned that I worked with CERN. I learned some crazy things about the first website at CERN. I learned that uh, the web as we have it today is not meant to be like it is now. It was supposed to be a read-write medium. It was like Wikipedia is probably the closest current example of what the web was like then. 
Um, and also, it was, it was a way of collaborating. It was a way of sharing documentation, sharing documents around because they were building the LHC and there was all this data and memos just weren't going to cut it anymore. You know, physical memos being delivered from one office to the other. There's no way that could have worked at scale. Uh, so, so, thinginess of the thing. That's the first thing. Um, it says it all, really. Making things is messy, right? The, I think that those of us who work at agencies, so I worked at agencies pretty much my whole career, and I ran an agency, and I'm kind of guilty of this to some degree as well, is that I think since the 1950s, clients have been sold a lie by advertising, and it started then, right? It, it started when you make the... I was just talking with Lisa about this just today. You make the mess of design and creation and making something and you try and squish it down and productize it and make it into a thing that you can sell to a client. And you're like, right, we'll do discovery here, we'll do design here, and you get three rounds of changes and you, you as a client has to come back. Anything beyond that is a change request and you have to fill a form in and give it to us and then we'll tell you how much it'll cost additionally. And then and it goes along and then eventually, Mr. Client, you'll get something at the end. And it's this system that we can repeat, right? Because it's, that's efficiency. That's how we make money as an agent. Hey, the service industry, you know, we do, agencies don't make a lot of money, right? Be not, not at the same as kind of the scale of products, right? There's just not the scale there. So the way that they make money is by making savings, and that's a saving. But that's not how things get made. <laughs> it's really not. It's a total lie. That is related to, generally related to billing points, right? When can I invoice a client? I can invoice them at the end of discovery, at changes one, two, and three, and any subsequent changes and delivery. It's like, when can I get my money, right? Rather than... This is what making things looks like. It's a big fat mess. And this is my, this is my lounge, right? This was last year. Uh, I, so this is interspersed with kind of, I'm, I'm kind of renovating an old house. So you just have to excuse me while I show you pictures like this. Uh, but the reason I'm telling you this is this, this, was, uh, this looks beautiful now. It's, uh, it's a beautiful, uh, we had a stonemason called Di Jones. That's the Welshest name for the Welshest Welshman you have ever seen in your life. He's perfectly round, and he's so well designed for picking up rocks. Um, and he, uh, he, he, he just knocked the crap out of my lounge for two days, and there was stuff everywhere. I was like, what are you doing to my house? Uh, and, but then I get really interested in what he's doing, so I'm like a little kid, like, what are you doing? Can I make you a cup of tea as long as you tell me what you're doing? This is what making things is like. He didn't quite, he didn't know what was behind here until he knocked it about, right? That's discovery for you. You don't know until you knock it about and see what's there. Uh, and then you work with what you've got. And he worked with what he had. He had some stone and we had some stone. He's like, oh yeah, I'll just, you know, this stone's rubbish you gave me, so I've got to buy some more. I was like, okay. That's what making things is like. Uh, and I think there's great value in exposing people in your organizations or clients. When I did client work and what I'm doing at Monotype now a lot is ever so gently introducing people who have never seen design happen like this. 
exposing them to it, helping them along, helping them when they get freaked out, because they get freaked out a lot, because like, what, what is this? It's a big fat mess. When, when there's nothing coming out of the end. They expect pretty pictures, because generally that's what they're sold in a pitch with this process. So um, the reason why making things is messy on my wall is to keep on reminding myself when I get so much flack for exposing people to the mess of design that it's worthwhile. Because the more that you can educate the people around you about how things get made, uh, the better the environment is to make the stuff, right? If I went in to die and completely f freaked out because he made a mess, he would have walked off the job and left, left me with that. Thankfully, he didn't, and I didn't, and now I've got a beautiful land. So the next thing, well, when I, um, uh, I used to run a little publisher as well. Um, that started out with me writing my own book because I trained in typography and I saw the state of computer books, and they're awful. So I didn't want, didn't want my words massacred by some poor print designer working under a, a whip uh, to produce things within a day. I was like, no, I'll just do my own book. And then I self-published, and then other people were like, that's really nice, can you publish my book? And it kind of grew from there. I never really intended to be a publisher. And as such, I did things, Frank Shimero, uh, he's got a, um, a, a great lecture he gave at the Do Lectures. It's online somewhere called The Long, Hard, Stupid Way. And uh, I totally get where he's coming from because that's what we did with Five Simple Steps. We did things the long, hard, stupid way. We, we, didn't, re we didn't know what we were doing uh, continually. And we made so, so many mistakes. And there's real value in that. There's real value in, in building your own fulfillment system. It was ridiculous why we did it. So Andy Clark had just written hard-boiled web design. We pre-sold the first print run entirely, and it snowed. <laughs> now, for those of you who live in the UK or have been to the UK, when it snows, we don't know what to do. Uh, so there was all these books in this warehouse, and it was a little family warehouse because we thought we'd do it kind of cheaply. And uh, we called them, and they're like, can you deliver these books now? They're like, no, snowed. Um, and we had to do it all manually. It was just horrendous. Instead of using something like Shipwire, which is incredibly awesome, uh, Shipwire hooks into Shopify, and it just works. And it costs like $50 a month. No, we made it all ourselves. It got snowed in. It was horrendous, right? But we learned an awful lot there about how fulfillment works, how these software systems work, because we had to build our own. Long, hard, and stupid. Uh, and there's value in that. At least I think there is. So you know Pixar, right? Um, you know Steve Jobs was obviously part of Pixar. And then there's the guy with the crazy shirts. What's he called? Something Laster, right? There's another guy uh, called Ed Catmill. Uh, he's the he did the he's the computer animator. So he did, I think the uh, the hand that's quite kind of a famous animated hand. Um, he wrote a, a really great book uh, called Creativity Inc. I don't know if you've read it. Uh, if you haven't, I'd recommend it. It's kind of a business business book, but it's actually not. If you if you read it, it's uh, it's just got wonderful insights into how he runs an organization like that and the history of Pixar. 
But he talks about one of the, the, the probably the number one management sort of technique thing that, that he, he does daily. Um, and, you know, I was expecting something to do with profit and loss or, you know, line management or something like this. No, his, his number one thing is just being, uh, being aware, paying attention. And that's it. He said, if you can just do that, you're 50% there. If you just keep your eyes open to what's going on around you. And this doesn't count just for managers, right? I mean, my new job, I'm the manager, I guess. Uh, I ran a, a company before, and it was my job to keep my eyes open, right? Just to just pay attention. But if you're a designer in the team, um, yeah, it's so important to keep abreast of not what's in your immediate surroundings, what's going on in the immediate project. So many people just hunker down. When, when, especially if it's a stressful project or a stressful environment, you know, it's just hunker down, keep focused on what's directly in front of you. But your ability to affect change when you're here, it is is very small. And and my experience is that that, that space just shrinks, right? As however hard it may be, however it may be against your kind of disposition to go and talk to people and to just clients, whoever, remember, messy mess, get people exposed to the design. Give people sketches to look at. I, 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 um, when I first started at Monotype in, in May, uh, I showed a, a really awful, crappy prototype to the CEO. And he'd never seen work like that before. Never. Uh, and his reaction to it was great. But I don't know what he said about behind my back. But no, I think he was, you know, it was good. It was good. Um, and that was way out of my comfort zone, right? That was way out of, uh, of uh, my little kind of hunkered down, stressful situation of starting a new job and selling my business and stuff. So paying attention. So it's noticing the reason why there's a flower here is just noticing the seeds that go flying past you all the time, every day. Ideas are just like, so you know, the seeds in the wind. They're just, there's hundreds of them, thousands of them. Every day we're bombarded by them. If you're paying attention, you're more likely to see something that might work. Or you're more likely to see some relationship with somebody else that might turn into something. They may be able to help you in a little while. So, you know, be nice to people. That's another one that's not on my list, but be nice. Because what goes around comes around, and you never know when you might need help. Uh, so charging around being bolshy and, and aggressive, even though you may be thinking you're being direct, quite often a confusion there, um, then uh, just be really, really careful of that. Uh, is is don't confuse don't confuse the two. So everything starts as a seed, and pay attention. This is a great poster from Lucian, who is six years old, and he has some advice. Uh, number one, build Legos. That's an American weirdism because uh, I'd just call it Lego. Uh, drink chocolate milk. Play with your friends. Don't talk on the phone too much and draw every day. If I could live my life to this set of rules, I reckon I'd be totally happy all of the time. Um, so I'm really glad that Lisa brought this up this morning, and you know, it's cropped up a couple of times today, is that um, I can't really stress how important it is uh, and how difficult it is. This is probably the most difficult bit of my job, but it's also the most important and the most valuable. Um, you can't be a great designer or do great work if the environment is 
is wrong. Uh, and if there's somebody, maybe not you, but somebody else spending their time making the environment right, then A, you shouldn't notice, and B, you'll just be producing some of the best work of your life. It's like a gardener cultivating the soil, right? You can't expect to just plant something and it grow, right? You've got to spend the time with your hands in the dirt making the soil right. And it's the same in any organization. It's the same with any client. It's some real big warning signs for client work is if you can spot, there are signs, right? You can spot the signs when the environment's not right. You know, you're not really talking to the person who makes the decisions. Uh, You get mmms and ahs when you ask questions. Uh, Things like, you know, who's going to be signing off this design? Mm, Well, that's complicated. You know, the environment's not right there. Uh, So always be talking. That says talking. Sorry about my handwriting. I've been, uh, somebody read that once as hawking. Don't be hawking. Yeah, well, don't. That's weird. Don't be hawking. Um, But, uh, you know, always be talking. Uh, it's, it's probably just the most important thing, right? But, but the challenge is that it's not measurable. It's not defined in your kind of quarterly goals. It's really hard to, re- to, to report on. It's really, really difficult, be- it's certainly within an environment where it's about producing stuff, whatever that stuff may be, wireframes or requirements documents, or, you know, it doesn't really matter. Without this happening, that stuff is a waste of time because it just gets put in a drawer or it goes on someone's desk and nobody looks at it. Uh, Talking to get the environment right is probably the most valuable work that you can do. Certainly the most valuable work that I'm doing at the moment is is changing the the way an organization talks to itself, about itself, and to each other. Uh, And that's, we're not even producing anything really yet. It's just... So we're just making the soil right. Uh, Watch real people, because people are weird. And designers are weird, and we produce weird interfaces, and we expect people to use them. Uh, My first ever uh, visit to a lab was in in 1999. It was in London. I was working for um, a design agency, agency agency.com. And we were designing a, a, a site for a paper merchant Website, turns out people trade paper, which is weird, uh, and they trade it, they wanted to trade it online. And so we built this thing, um, you know, as you'd expect, really high fidelity, finished almost. It was the end of the project, and we went into a lab because it was a line item that needed to, you know, there's no user centered design process there. And we all treated it so jolly. Right, so we're all in there eating crisps and popcorn, and it's a lo- having a lovely time. Uh, and then in comes the first uh, participant, and he's like, uh, I don't know, he's in his 60s, maybe. You know, he's the absolute target market, right? And there were maybe a dozen of these people coming in in the day. And uh, he sits down. Uh, there's a there's a kind of a one-on-one interview, which is you know interesting. We learned a lot. Then he comes to you know some simple tasks, um, and he picks a mouse up and he puts it on the screen. I'm not joking. Of course, everybody did what you did. <laughs> what an idiot. Um, but we were like, but that, that lasted about three seconds before everyone just went, oh, we've got much bigger problems. Uh, and of course, there was no budget to address those problems. We didn't do our homework. The site went live, failed catastrophically, and everybody lost their jobs. Uh, 
So it's not a cheery ending for just simply watching real people. It's not difficult. This is what great, oh, it just winds me up. Um, so again, another part, I keep referring to Lisa, she made so many great points this morning. But it's just get people in a room and just five people and just test them. Just well, Not test them, test the interface. Get them in a room. It's not hard. I think one of some of the damage that uh, I think it's probably the, you know um, as a designer who comes from a graphic design background on the web, uh, you know, a decade ago maybe I got exposed to IA and a lot of the, the you know the library sciences and, and UCD and all this other stuff that came in from some would say quite an academic background, and I think with that academic background came a load of baggage, and it just sounds hard. Even today, uh, you, you read some articles, you read some books, you, you watch people talk, and you're just like, N my, my manager's not going to sign off on that. My client's not going to pay for that. Those are just excuses, right? Well, the real reason is, and I'm talking about myself here, well, the real reason is, is like, I don't know how to do that. I don't know, I don't really know how to run an ethnographic study. I don't, I don't get that stuff, right? But it's okay. Maybe that's not your job. Hire somebody who does, right? Let them worry about that. Uh, so it's not hard. Watch some real people. You'll learn loads. It's really great. It's really great to get, uh, to get that immediate kind of feedback. And we, we're often so sitting behind an interface on a screen we're like a few steps removed and abstracted from just people using this stuff that we're making. And uh, quite often it's a real eye-opener. So make stuff. Uh, you know, watch real people. This is my house, again. So this is, um, this is really quick and straightforward. I had to change a light. This is a four-gang light switch. Uh, and I wanted to change it because it was horrible. It was really ugly. So I took a photograph of the wires before I changed it. It's a good DIY tip for you there. Uh, the problem is it didn't work, and what happens now is that I come in the door and I turn one light on, and in another room a light comes on. And I have to go in that room to turn it off, to come back in this room to turn another switch for this room to... So the, the thing here is to just know your limits, web designers, and get an expert in when you need an expert. Uh, don't try and tackle these things on your own. MVP, I don't like this term, but I like what it stands for. I, li I like some of the things that it means. Um, I think in practice it's almost impossible to, uh, it's really hard. It's really, really hard to get to minimal and viable. That's the problematic bit of MVP. Product bit's easy. Minimal and viable. Minimal and viable. That's really, really hard. But what it does do is uh, it, it supports this thinginess of the thing, right? that we can ship something really, really quickly, get feedback from real people really, really quickly, and redo it. We don't have to order steel from China. We don't have to uh, wait six weeks for a supply line, right? We can just do it, and that's cool. What I see in practice, so we've seen this uh, kind of what's it thing, hierarchy of needs thing from functional to, you know, whatever, uh, delightful. It's a triangle. You know, every presentation needs a triangle, right? Um, so I like to do this with food, right? So edible, tasty, delicious, and kind of special. I didn't really know what to put at the top there. Maybe you can give me an idea of what that should be. 
So what happens with MVP generally? What I've seen over the past few years uh, when, you know, uh, Agile teams became more of a thing, uh, it's, you know, uh, the focus on MVP was, 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 uh, was kind of baked into the, into the process, is that there's a real concentration down at the bottom, right? It's like, let's just, which is fine. I think it's good. You know, food has to be edible. It's like, that's the base requirement of food, right? It has to be edible. So, but what happens over time is that if you're working on a project now, you, you build a little bit over here, and then you run out of time. So, you know, the sprints you build, and you keep building this edible functional stuff, but then things change. So as you're building this edible layer out, things change that make you revisit the edible layer. And you keep on just visiting the edible layer. And you just end up with edible food. And nobody wants to eat just edible food, right? So I'd rather, I'd rather see MVP. This is what I've been trying to work on recently with the product teams I'm working on, uh, working with, is, is to do this more kind of vertically. Is to concentrate on the edible, but then include some of the tasty and delicious stuff as well, right? And you iterate on those layers, not just edible, not just functional. Uh, now, of course, that would depend where you work. Sometimes just getting the basics right is really, really hard, um, as Lisa said. So, <coughs> don't hide from content. It's the thing. Uh, this drives me crazy. Uh, it's the so many times on projects, and this is going back like a decade, you, the clients say, oh, we'll get to that. Oh, yeah, 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 we'll get to that. It doesn't matter. Yeah, we'll, we'll get onto that. So show me something nice and shiny. And now we'll get to the content. And what they're doing is just making this kind of content mountain that they have to climb at the end of a project. And then nothing gets, nothing gets built, right? Because they're making this big old task. They're just shoveling it to one side. All of a sudden, it's the size of Mount Everest. And they're never going to write everything that they need to fulfill the, the design. So is to just bake that content in. The way that I address this with prototypes is that if you're not lucky enough to work with an editor or a, or a, a, a content strategist or somebody like that, is that just write the content and the client won't write for you. It's just write the content yourself. There's nothing more uh, annoying I found to a client than if you just make stuff up that's sort of accurate. And they'll go, no, 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 that's wrong. That's wrong. That's, to that's totally inaccurate. And they'll say, send me that thing, and I'll, I'll send you the, the, the correct version this afternoon. You're like, okay. And you do that for everything. And it works brilliantly. Um, so my next thing, I have no idea what this diagram means. And that's the point. I am festooned around my desk at ridiculous diagrams like this that I have no idea what they mean. So... I keep having to remind myself that this just just be clear. Just be clear in what you communicate. This is not clear. That was that. So uh, this can be somewhat contentious, uh, data, not instinct. Um, but these are actually two. So data, not instinct, and instinct, not data. This is just about balance. Um, and generally, this is from a... So you talk to one product manager, and one product manager or client might be just totally into analytics, right? They may just be like, oh, and their idea of a design process is design process by AB design, multivariant design. And that's just throwing stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks. And some people are fine with that. 
But in my experience, designing that way, you will only end up with something edible. It will only perform its job. It will never be delightful. It will never be special. And that's where instinct comes in. There's something... So I was talking last night at the speaker's dinner about type design, right? So uh, now I work at Monotype. I get to talk to really smart designers, type designers. And one of them was telling me about uh, italic type. So a lot, of a lot of old typefaces never had an italic, right? So with, with a library of thousands and thousands of typefaces, producing an italic for every one of those is incredibly laborious. So what they do is they run an algorithm to make the type oblique and then maybe uh, change out a couple of characters. Now, if you do that and it's automated and you run alongside of that one that has been handmade but looks nearly identical, uh, and there's, there's data to support this, is that um, people will buy the one that's been handmade, even though that these are kind of identical. And that's because, that's because there's, a, uh, there's an element of a human touch. There's an element of delight. There's, there's a process that's gone through. It's not a faulty algorithm, right? Uh, and this just comes on to So this was a chip shop table in Tenby in, uh, in West Wales. And it really made me smile. And you can bet that everybody who goes into that chip shop and sits down, this makes them smile. So if you can, make something delightful. Just make people smile. Uh, the chips were good, too. Um, Looking after the basics, it's really easy to say, it's really hard to do. Uh, are there any martial artists in the room? Anybody who did martial arts? No, a couple, yeah. So one of the things you do when you learn martial arts is that you amass technique. So when you first start martial arts, you, you learn lo lots of stuff, lots of ways of attacking people, <laughs> lots of way of kicking and punching, and loads of different ways of doing it. And then you get to a certain point in, in experience, and you... You stop using all that stuff, and you start focusing in down on just one or two different things. And I find that my design career has been similar to that when I practiced martial arts, is that, you know, early on in my career, I was gathering stuff. I was like, trying this and trying that and trying this. And now I'm at a point where I'm doing a lot less of that, and I'm focusing on, on typesetting, and I'm concentrating a lot on the basics, because... If you get the basics right, the rest is, uh, is easier. So this, um, this is really about ego and uh, preconceptions and messy people with messy politics. So you go into an organization, so you have a meeting, and you go into that meeting, and everybody just says their thing that they've rehearsed before they come to the meeting, right? Everyone has those preconceptions. It's only when all that crap has gone out of the way, that you really get to the meeting, right? Normally, there's all this preconceived stuff in the way. And sometimes, it's, it's kind of, you get into a situation where people will just throw around their weight a little bit, <coughs> right? They'll, uh, they're, they're senior people. They want to impose their kind of seniority. And that's okay, right? So this is in 1974. Um, Muhammad Ali and George Foreman fought in the Rumble in the Jungle in Manila. Now, Foreman was going into this as, uh, as a clear favorite. He'd beaten Ali three years ago. Ali was getting old. Uh, and the odds for this were, were, were incredible in favor of, of uh, George Foreman, who's on the floor. 
right? So what happened was that Ali, uh, his strategy was to just l sit against the ropes and just absorb whatever Foreman threw at him. All the while goading him. Now, I don't suggest doing that in a meeting. Uh, all the while just taking it and taking it and taking it until George Foreman punched himself out and then Ali, Ali won. And that, that technique has become known as the rope-a-dope, right? So sometimes if you're in a meeting or you're with a client, then that happens, right? They've come in there with these preconceived ideas and they'll just verbally wail on you for 20 minutes. And it might all be nice and calm. They're not being aggressive in any way. But they want their point. They want to put their point across. And I found that at that point, doing the rope-a-dope is really useful. It's just sit there and take it. Maybe you'll lose that battle. But, you know, the war carries on. Uh, Right? Uh, this one, again, this one's a really important one. This is uh, a scene from Mad Men. I love that show. It's great. Uh, I was saying we've been sold a lie from, from uh, advertising. I also think there are some good things that come from advertising. Advertising gets a bad reputation, certainly in the web industry. For some reason, well, they do a lot of bad stuff. But uh, they do some things really, really well from a business perspective. One of those things is that they have accounts and not projects. So if you work at an ad agency and you win a client by way of a pitch, you don't win a project, generally. You win an, an account. An account is uh, a time duration. Normally it's a year, could be three years. And what that account is, is a commitment. One of the bad things about web design right now is that you, you win a project, and a project's not a commitment. It's a, you will design and deliver and build this thing for me with this cost in this time. Uh, an account would be, we're going to work with you for 12 months or three years, and you're, we're going to share, we're going to learn from each other, and we're going to work towards this common goal. Sure, there'll be projects along the way. That account gets carved up. The budget for that account gets carved up into lots of different things. And there are ob objectives, there are things to, to deliver, there's stuff to do. But really, it's about commitment. We will work together. And that's really great. So Kevin Spacey, uh, when uh, he went to, to Netflix, they shopped around for a long time uh, to get uh, House of Cards made. And the reason being is that the, the TV industry in the US is a bit broken. Is that it's centered around the pilot. And the pilot, it's really hard. A pilot has to establish the characters, it has to establish the story, it has to end on a cliffhanger, it has to bring in advertising revenue, it has to, uh, you know, there's a love triangle, there's a car chase, there's, you know, all of this stuff, tick, 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 and then leave somebody wanting to watch the show. And based on all that, the show gets commissioned. Uh, now, for the team for, uh, for House of Cards, they were like, no, because we needed time for the story to play out. It wasn't going to work in a pilot. And that's the same with, with web projects, half the time. In my experience, there's not enough time for the story to play out. It was one of the driving forces for me selling my own business and now working at Monotype is that I've seen the value. Very lucky to work with a couple of clients over a long period of time, three years, four years. And that's the kind of time you need to learn how you can be effective, how you can change culture sometimes. Uh, you need that time. Anyone, anyone do any Chinese cooking? Right. So there's a wonderful phrase in Chinese cooking that says digital things age differently. Uh, there's a wonderful phrase in Chinese cooking called wok hei, 
which means breath of wok. So the idea is that you never wash the wok and the, 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 the flavor from the wok gets imparted into the food. And over time, that gets better because the patina of the pan gets better. I like to think about that in how, does our, how do our digital products age, right? They don't, do, they don't go rusty. It's not like steel. They don't need cleaning. Well, maybe they do. They get full of data. Designers are terrible for designing for just one age, right? Designers, a lot of the time, design babies, right? We, we create something that before data gets in and ads get in and before mess, right? Before the messiness. Because designers want to control that, you know? It's a, it's, the mess is natural. It's entropy, right? Everything tends towards chaos. Uh, and, you know, you look at any newspaper website, you can see that in effect. Um, so it's to be mindful about how something is going to age that you design. Now, this is, uh, this is, I've got four minutes left. This is, um, uh, marginal gains is a, is a management technique that was applied to the British cycling team and then the Sky cycling team. So this was to overcome doping. So if you dope in, in cycling, in professional cycling, you get about a 17 to 20% advantage. That's a lot. 20% 20, 20 advantage of those kind of levels is an incredible amount. So to not take drugs, you have to find 17 or 20% from elsewhere. And marginal gains was about finding that from lots and lots and lots of little, little places. And then they all add up to 20%. And I'd like to try and apply this, and you know, I try to do this daily in my work, is that it's not about big gains for me anymore. Uh, it's because it just can't happen when you're working in a big juggernaut that's going you know, 70 mile an hour. You can't just turn it on a dime. It's about little gains, little tiny incremental gains everywhere. And if everybody works on those gains, all of a sudden you're really making change. But it's just tiny little things. This is my daughter. It goes on for ages. But uh, <laughs> the reason I'm, I'm showing you that, now I'm not sure if you noticed, but halfway through that, that Furby, which is that thing, farted, right? Now, I was horrified when that happened. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's not, that's not right. How inappropriate. You can't have a toy that farts. Of course, she thought it was brilliant. Uh, th and the kids love it. Now, uh, this is the, the kind of one of my last points, which was it's becoming, as I get older, I'm 41 now. As I get older, it's becoming increasingly difficult for me to empathize with whoever I'm designing for, right? shown there by my inappropriate, you know, I thought that was inappropriate. But she thought it was great. So that's one thing that I'm just more mindful of, and this comes just by like Lisa's exposure hours, right, is just spending time with these people gets you, y you become more empathetic to their needs, and you get why they find something horrific or not. Uh, and the last, image, the last one is, is, of course, Bob Ross. So Bob Ross is a hero of mine. Uh, uh, he is, actually. He, I loved that he, he's just so happy all the time. Maybe he's high. Uh, but 
he was, and he'd make mistakes, and then he'd turn them into little raccoons, and everything would be great. And he'd paint the same picture every week, um, which is that one, right? But what we do every day is, you know, we're not, we're not heart surgeons, right? This stuff is not, yeah, it may be challenging. We may go home and pull our hair out, and, like, it's really hard. Uh, but really, we should, you know, it, we, we should be having fun. We should be like Bob. Smile, you know, it's good, it's good fun what we do. That's it, thank you very much. Any questions? I'm a bit over, aren't I? No, everyone wants beer. Yeah. Oh no, there's one. One, the guy who's stopping you going for beer. <laughs> the what? The taps. Oh, I was going to mention them. Yes, I was doing that all the way around. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, then, then I looked down. I was like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm going to take a photograph later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's going in, it's going in my own collection. All right? No? Well, I'm around, so, you know, come and ask me stuff. That's fine. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.